You're listening to Full Metal Podcast, a hard defense podcast brought to you by the defense team at the Center for a New American Security. Hi, I'm Jerry Hendricks. I'm Lauren Fish. I'm Adam Ruth. I'm Susanna Bloom. And this week on Full Metal Podcast, uh, we're going to chat a little bit about forward basing uh, in uh, with the U.S. Navy, and hopefully we'll get around to also talking about the current status of the MQ-25 competition. Uh, but first, uh, uh, in the past week, I, I proposed an idea, actually wrote it down and let people yell at me about it uh, online, about uh, perhaps moving littoral combat ships into the Black Sea and as well as into the Baltic Sea as a means of somewhat uh, strategically countering some of Russia's moves. Um, and uh, and uh, with the idea of, of using one class of ships, uh, the steel hull ships up in the Baltic where it gets icy and snowy, and on the Black Sea using the aluminum trimaran hulls uh, and then basing them out of Poland and Romania. Uh, and I, I have to say that it's been kind of an interesting conversation that's picked up at least uh, amongst the intelligentsia on the comments page. Uh, you know, so uh, you but, read the comments. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes, you know, out of moment of weakness, I'll go in and read the comments. Do page. you do you comment back? To <laughs> no, no, I don't. Savage. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know, Jerry. I think somebody in Russia may have read your article because they uh, just commenced a live fire exercise in the Baltic. Three days of missile tests. Uh, they're inside Latvia's exclusive economic zone, so just outside the twelve nautical mile territorial waters. Uh, interesting. <laughs> interesting back and forth of ideas and actions here. Because, of course, if I write something, Putin responds almost immediately. Yeah, exactly. You're, I'm you're just, quite influential, I mean, talk about, talk about impact, Jerry. <laughs> so I, have, I have a question here. So uh, I agree that we probably need to do more to deter Russia from doing what Susanna just described. However, there is a history of us playing checkers while Russia plays chess. So if we forward base in the Baltic and the Black Sea, or would you have these other more traditional um, gestures to demonstrate our resolve and our allies' resolve, we shouldn't expect that we're going to get a tit-for-tat response from Russia. Our, our expectation from Russia that their response will be far different, maybe not in the same domain or in the same way. So how do we, how do we prepare ourselves for, for that? Well, I mean, actually, the, I think the idea of forward basing is, is an attempt to get out of the, the checkers mode and simply try to respond tit for tat, but actually, you know, uh, jump up the escalation ladder a little bit more. Uh, obviously, both are NATO allied partners in Poland as well as down in Romania, both have interests. Russia is in fact sitting, you know, having annexed Crimea uh, and violated, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the Westphalian Treaty. Someone said, well, you can't do that because of the Treaty of Montrose. And I'm like, how about the, the Westphalian Treaty? Because Putin's already violated that. Why are, why are we all running around trying to obey these, these uh, laws when it's very clear that he has no interest in them? Uh, but my well, because idea we're the defenders of the international order, Jerry. I mean, yes. the, the right? We're the good guys. Yeah, we're the good guys. Good guys follow rules. And apparently the only ones who do. Uh, so, that, I mean, that's the one thing. When you're the only one following a norm, it's not a norm. Uh, so that's uh, that's a challenge that we have is how to actually put them off kilter. Yeah, I think Adam makes a good point about thinking outside the box about what uh, the response might be from Russia. But I do think it's a good idea to think more um, strategically, differently, outside the box about where we have forces. I also think it's a good complement to the European Deterrence Initiative request for this year was largely in the Army and the Air Force. And so this would be a good complement to bringing some naval presence to the region. Um, that we haven't considered. I, go ahead, Susanna. I have some questions about the LCS. So what are these ships going to do? Are they just going to be there? 
So it's interesting. I mean, they're not, not the most capable platform in the Navy. Well, I mean, it, the, but there is some capabilities. Each one of them is a, a single mission uh, capacity. I think, quite frankly, up in the Baltic, you know, put them out there with the surface warfare modules. Uh, down in, uh, in the, the Black Sea, we might put, uh, you know, a mix of modules on there from the, the mine hunting capabilities as well as the anti-submarine warfare uh, and, and just put it out there and, and sort of mix it up with our allies, but also demonstrate that we can bring a range of capacities. The key thing, though, is to demonstrate naval presence, that the U.S. has interest there in supporting the alliance and then somewhat invite the Russians to challenge us. So what does that do for readiness? The Navy is particularly hard up uh, on readiness. Is that improving it? Is that hardening it? Is that Do we need the 355 ships to do this? Actually, you know, based upon rotation schedules, if you forward base three ships into each one of those, you actually have the net result of taking the strain off from uh, uh, 12 ships back home because by forward basing, they're always there. Essentially, they're always kind of counted on deployment, and it actually lessens the strain on the remainder of the fleet. Well, uh, so, yeah, there's a math question there and that it's it can be uh, less expensive and more efficient to uh, achieve a 1.0 presence of a ship by forward basing that ship rather than trying to meet that requirement through rotational presence. However, um, you know, what you saw in the reports following the two ship collisions that occurred in the Pacific were that these FDNF, these forward deployed naval forces, which actually means forward based naval forces, it's confusing terminology, um, were being operated at such a much higher tempo that they did not have time to train. There were issues of crew fatigue. And so, you know, there's, I think, significant downsides to that model as well. Uh, very, very good points and, and something to be considered. Just simply put out as a strategic thought. But with that being said, speaking of strategic thoughts, uh, a key capability that could uh, keep our aircraft carriers relevant into the future by extending the range of the current carrier air wing is the new MQ-25 program, which is supposed to be an unmanned carrier-based mission tanker, which is to say carrying enough gas to extend the, the missions of the aircraft on the flight deck. And right now we have three major manufacturers now who have three prototypes on the table. Um, that's kind of interesting because the prototypes uh, although meeting the same basic minimum capability, which is being able to transfer 14,000 pounds of gas at 500 miles from the carrier, they all take slightly different designs. And uh, it's kind of interesting that Lockheed has a, a flying wing. Uh, General Atomics is drawing upon its vast experience with ISR to come up with something that is more resembling of that. And, uh, and Boeing's got something that's sort of um, a combination of the two. And so this is going to be an interesting competition uh, that's going to have long-term implications for the carrier. I think that the most critical part of this program is going to be a proof of concept that unmanned aircraft can operate off the carrier deck integrated with the rest of the wing. That's kind of objective number one. Um, you know, the tanking mission is, of course, important, but I think that if, if you keep that primary mission in mind of proving that this is a thing that can happen, uh, what you want to do is drive risk, both in terms of cost and schedule, down as far as possible in order to get your demonstration onto the flight deck and, and going. Yeah, I, th I think that that's I think that's accurate, and I think that there's obviously been some problems with that. The Navy has changed what the requirements are and some of the the issues. Obviously, Northrop Grumman dropped out because the latest request for proposal. Uh, gave them pause about whether or not they could deliver on what they were asked to deliver, not because Northrop Grumman can't do it, but because it's changed so frequently. And I think it's also important to note that I don't know if all of these proposed 
platforms are going to be able to operate in the future threat environment. Mm -hmm. Some of them are not stealthy. Some of them are large, mm -hmm. Well, but they're tankers, so they don't necessarily have to be. I mean, the, the point of an unmanned tanker is not to penetrate enemy integrated air defense missile well, defense why, systems. But they're, it, they, they, they stay outside of it. those threat rings to... Based on current the penetrating aircraft. adversary capabilities, you're assuming that there's a lifespan then. You're assuming that if they can go just to that A2AD bubble and tank, then these 5th gen, 6th gen fighters can get in. But what if the, the bubble extends? What do we have in, in 15 years when we're employing this MQ-25? <clears throat> I don't think we're thinking far enough ahead in, in, in the design. Some of them well, maybe. The Lockheed, the Lockheed model, the, the flying wing model, is said to have the most kind of stealth capabilities, low profile kind of, and not stealth specifically, but low profile that could maybe address some of those questions. I do think it's interesting, however, um, given the number of fourth generation aircraft we have versus fifth generation aircraft, being able to extend the range of the fifth generation aircraft into an A2AD bubble is critical. And so thinking about this and actually getting it operational, the CNO wants it by 2020, you know, that's a great timeline to be actually thinking about that sort of thing. All right. Well, the one thing that I look at on this that I, I don't think was taken up was the idea of evolvability. In the past, all of our tankers used to be uh, medium attack bombers. This, we're building a, a purpose-built tanker I would really like uh, the idea of in the initial design to think about can that thing go forward in the future as we devolve or evolve additional capabilities with AI and so on to become a bomber. If it can carry that much gas, maybe it can carry some ordnance too and then do that penetrating mission. But right now, uh, it's just good to see three designs or at least the drawings of them and, and start thinking about the future of unmanned aircraft operating. Uh, so uh, next up on Full Metal Podcast, uh, an interview this week with former Air Force Secretary Deborah Lee James about U.S. space policy and the way ahead in that arena. All right, for this week's uh, special guest for Full Metal Podcast, we are joined by former Air Force Secretary Deborah Lee James, who's come to talk with us today about U.S. Uh, space policy and, and the U.S.'s role in space as a national security uh, challenge domain. Uh, so Secretary James, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Jerry. It's great to be here at the Center for a New American Security. Well, we appreciate you being here. We want to talk to you about, about space and it's, it's coming up in its profile with, with regard to the national security conversation that's ongoing in the United States today. First question I had for you, uh, how do you perceive the domain as, as, as changing? What is the, the impact right now of sort of commercial development in space? Well, first of all, Jerry, I will tell you that space, if it ever was a peaceful domain, is certainly not one that we consider to be a peaceful domain uh, these days. So when I was Secretary of the Air Force, we used to say that space is now um, both congested and contested. It's congested in the sense that there are many more space-faring nations, those nations who are able to launch a satellite into space. There are many more commercial entities that are launching satellites into space, which means there are way more satellites in orbit than ever before. You add to that the fact that there is space debris, which although could be quite small, can do great damage because debris is hurling around the Earth at very, very um, uh, uh, fast uh, uh, levels. So there's more going on in space, it's congested, and it is contested. By that I mean um, our adversaries, uh, potential adversaries around the world know that the U.S. military uh, is very dependent on space for many things. Everything from missile warning to predicting the weather to precision navigation and timing 
to communications. And so we believe that um, our adversaries could well be thinking about war plans that could attack our space assets if, if a conflict on Earth would ever bleed into space. So the domain is not one that we consider to be peaceful, and, and we need to be um, on our guard about that. Yeah, that's excellent. I think uh, General Hyten actually made some comments recently suggesting that we may still have a small advantage for the near term, but uh, over the next decade or so, we can expect our adversaries to really have developed those ASAC capabilities that give them an advantage over uh, the assets we put up space for the last 50 years that just really weren't produced for that contested environment. Do you agree with that, or do you think we're, we're more pressed than um, General Hyten has described? Do, do we have as much time as he suggests? I think we do. So let me be clear. I do think that we are um, still ahead in, in space. Um, we use it as a great uh, force multiplier for our own forces. And by the way, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but space is so important for everything that we've come to be used to as you know, civilian within our civilian lives here on Earth. Uh, so we are still ahead, but the degree of um, gap between us and the potential adversaries is being made smaller and smaller. So we need to kick it up a notch with more investments. We need to, uh, again, think of, of a uh, non-peaceful domain and how do we as a U.S. military deal with such domains? Well, we, we figure out CONOPS, we figure out tactics, techniques, and procedures. We train for it. Um, all of these things now are happening within the walls of the Pentagon and at Air Force Space Command. It's this different way of thinking so that we can remain ahead and that we can um, continue to use space to our country's and our allies' best advantage. You know, there's an old saying in, in the maritime environment where, where I'm most familiar that the flag follows trade, that, uh, that the U.S. Navy essentially evolved to look at where, uh, where U.S. commercial interests were on the globe across the seas. We have so many commercial interests, as you, as you stated uh, earlier. So much of our economy, uh, communications, and otherwise are based in, uh, based in space. And, and now even we're looking at you know, commercial development of resources in space, although that isn't a near-term thing. The, the question is, are, are we up to the task of defending our interests as we're presently defining them in the space environment? Well, we need to be, so I certainly hope so. And I believe that we um, are up to that task. The work has been ongoing for several years. I certainly spent a lot of my time working on space matters when I was Secretary of the Air Force. I know that Secretary Wilson is spending a lot of her time. The budgets are going up. We are investing more in development, and an awful lot of what's going on now is focused on the word resiliency. How do we make our assets uh, in space more resilient. And there's no one-size-fits-all answer to resilience. Resilience can be anything from, as we construct new satellites, they need to be more cyber secure and they need to be more anti-jam resistant than ever before. That's one form of resiliency. Use of small satellites and having more of them to complicate uh, a potential adversary's thinking. Uh, that's another form of it. Using different orbits, uh, which can be, again, confusing to a potential adversary, that's another possibility for resiliency. So there is no one-size-fits-all, but a lot of the thinking and a lot of what's going on is focused on the R word, resiliency. Yeah, I think resiliency is probably, as you mentioned, the R word is what uh, Secretary Wilson has, has mentioned more, General Hyten, General Goldfein, basically all the champions, members of Congress. Resiliency is definitely the key word. How do we incorporate that? into this kind of interdependency we have with the commercial sector as they 
start providing our military and other sectors more of their services, and especially as the Air Force looks to the commercial sector more for satellites and other types of systems, how do we ensure that they're resilient to our standards, or more importantly, that we're able to deter or defend their assets in the same as ours if our military is, in fact, using them in the future? Well, if I could also go back to an earlier question, which I don't think I fully answered, and that is essentially the commercial sector and what they are doing for us in space. And I just want to begin by saying I think we're actually in a very exciting time of a space uh, renaissance, perhaps the dawn of a new space age. And the private sector, without question, um, is leading the way. So there have been technical advances in uh, everything from material science, which, which will allow for the lessening of weight, so lighter satellites to be launched into orbit. 3D printing will bring down costs. So there's just a variety of technical advances that are ongoing. And we're also, I think, really fortunate that there's a lot of money going into the sector. So it's everything from billionaires who are self-funding projects to venture capital to more government money. So the combination, I think, is going to lead us in, and the, and the need, obviously, will lead us into this dawn of what I'm calling a new space age or a space renaissance. Now, how do you keep all that resilient? Well, it's a, it's a complicated uh, problem. So commercial satellites are never going to have, I don't predict, the type of resiliency that we expect for our military-capable um, satellites. But remember, I come back to the, the phrase, one size doesn't fit all. Not all satellites need to be protected in the same way. But I think from a policy perspective, we need to give a lot of thought as a country to if this, then what? If a commercial satellite were to be attacked or if something were questionably to happen to that satellite, how would we as a country react? Would that be an act of war? How would we react? These are policy questions which have not yet been fully explored. Yeah, your, your statement of if this, then what, I think is excellent. I think to kind of turn this commercial um, question the other way around is is we're seeing our adversaries invest in on-orbiting servicing uh, systems that are, you know, as they describe for peaceful purposes, how do they extend the life of their systems and how do they, you know, save costs on their end. But we we all know that those systems could be used as ASAT systems. And so if they're advertising this on-orbit servicing system is commercial and we're seeing it do things that are not such a commercial purpose, you know, how do we respond to that? And the, I, guess, I guess the question then is, is how do we prepare uh, the policy world? What, what, what would your recommendations be to the policymakers to ensure that we're preparing ourselves for that kind of flip or that gray zone tactic, so to speak? Well, first of all, I would point out that the U.S. government is also funding a certain degree of uh, exploration into the on-orbit um, servicing um, arena. So NASA is providing some funding for this in particular, and on-orbit uh, servicing at least gives us the potential to be able to repair satellites in orbit. It can be very important if it's an expensive satellite, um, and also to refuel. So there's a lot of potential good that can come from that, and we too are investing. But as you point out, they can also be perhaps used to ram a satellite, to otherwise hurt um, a satellite, and to knock it out of operations. So this is the type of thing where it has to be watched, watched carefully. Um, uh, international standards, I think, would be very, very helpful that would have to be negotiated in some sort of multilateral forum about how close um, a person's on, or a country's on-service satellite uh, capabilities could come to another country's satellite. So that's the type of standards that probably need to be uh, developed. And then the final point I will tell you is I'm actually quite encouraged that under this administration, 
there is a new space council that's based out of the White House and led by the vice president because so many of these questions that we're now talking with, they are above and beyond the capability of the military alone to answer or the State Department alone to answer. These go to the heart and to the very top of our government. And so to have um, a body that's led by the vice president out of the White House who hopefully will address some of these questions over the next two years, I think is a positive development. Yeah, I want to follow up on that point because uh, you know we recently took a question um, about the idea of, of whether the Space Council was uh, a success. One year in, is the Space Council a success uh, and is it being effective? And, and part of my response was, well, we haven't had a Space Council in 25 years. And so the mere fact that it's there and you have someone of the vice president's stature actually paying attention to this and convening the level, uh, you know, is a net positive. But, uh, you know, what are your thoughts now? They've had their first product, actually, a national space strategy come out of this. Have, do you find that to be promising? Is that leading us in the right direction? Are there areas that you were dissatisfied? Well, first of all, I agree with what you just said. The very fact that there is a high-level body, the very fact that there are agendas, that there are preparations for the body, that these things are being discussed, all of that is a positive. And for something of this magnitude to produce big-time results in one year is, is simply not reasonable. So I'm satisfied with the, um, the progress to date. As for the strategy that was developed, I'm not sure really how new any of that yeah. was. But again, we're one year into it, and there, we need to exercise some degree of, of patience. Um, but I will say this. I think answering, or at least tackling, some of these policy questions that we are discussing in this podcast ought to be top of the agenda. Because uh, when and if we are faced with such a dilemma, we will need to be able to respond and respond quickly. And if it hasn't been discussed in advance, um, it will make it much more uh, difficult for those top policymakers to tackle it. Um, historically, uh, the, the service that you led, the United States Air Force, uh, was derived out of the, air, the Army. You know, came out of uh, Air Division and then uh, an Air Corps and then an Air Force, an Army Air Force to become the United States Air Force. There's a raging debate going on right now about the, uh, the idea of whether we need to split off uh, the Space Force or a Space Corps out of the Air Force. What are your thoughts? Is this the time? Uh, and if not, do you see a time coming that that, that would happen that, you know, within uh, a decade or so? What are your thoughts on this debate? Well, I would begin by saying that any organizational construct can work. There is no organizational construct which, by definition, will not work. The question is, do you want to go through the pain? Um, do you want to go through years of uh, reorganizational drama in order to achieve the result that you are seeking. And the other question is, what exactly is the problem you're trying to solve? And do you really think an organizational change will do it for you? So when I look at that totality, I conclude that no, this is not the time to do a space core and separate it out. Um, I don't think it will address the top problem that most policymakers talk about, the top couple of problems. For example, Changing the organization in and of itself won't get you more money and it won't get you more investment. If it's more money and more investment you need, the budgets need to go up, which they are, and space is getting some of those increased budgets. So if money is your problem, organizational change is not your answer. Uh, number two, people talk about the frustration of the acquisition process being too slow. And if we don't speed it up, we're going to lose ground, not only in space, but in other key areas. 
I happen to agree with that. But if acquisition slowness is your problem, organizational change is not necessarily your answer. Rather, we need to work the authorities and speed it up through other ways. And by the way, that's happening also. So my basic point is any organizational construct can work, but I don't think it's the best approach. We could have a separate submarine force, for example, separate that from the Navy. That could work, but I don't think that's the best approach either. I think we need to focus on speeding up the acquisition system, continue the investments, continue to focus on resiliency. That's the best way forward. Well, uh, this concludes our, our interview, and we really appreciate the chance to have such a candid, frank conversation with you about a lot of these questions. Clearly, we think that, that space is an area of increased concern. We appreciate the opportunity to speak with former Air Force Secretary Deborah Lee James today here on Full Metal Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.